Thank you, Grace, for reading for us. And I'd like to begin with a book uh, recommendation this morning. This is a book called Dig Deeper that we often recommend in our life groups here at All Souls. And it was written a number of years ago to be a kind of a helpful guide for anybody who wants to try to get to grips with reading the Bible for themselves and interpreting it responsibly. And the way the book has been written is it's a little bit like a sort of toolkit that you could use. So when you come across, maybe you're reading the Bible on your own one morning, you're not quite sure what to do with a passage. Well, here are a few tools at your disposal to start to make sense of it. So for example, there's uh, the repetition tool that you might use. Have a look for some repeated words or themes or ideas in the passage, and maybe that'll help bring out what's important. Or perhaps the tone and feel tool. Is this a happy or a sad passage? What's the emotion of it? It's a way to kind of get in there and start to understand what this passage might be doing in Scripture. And if you've not come across it, um, I definitely recommend it as it will help you in your own Bible reading. But uh, a little while ago, a friend of mine and myself um, thought it would be fun to do a sort of spoof follow-up of this book and write a kind of a book with a toolkit of bad tools that you shouldn't use when reading the Bible, but often kind of we're tempted to do so or we do it without realizing. So, for example, uh, the crowbar tool, when you uh, want to turn the passage into something that you want it to say rather than what it does say, well, just get out the crowbar tool and if you sort of crowbar it a little bit, then you can kind of get it to say what you want anyway. Or my particular favorite... The glossing over tool, big, big one for, uh, uh, for preachers here. It's very easy sometimes just to gloss over the difficult bits and land on the easy bits. And the Bible's a lot more straightforward to understand if you do it that way. Often comes out saying stuff that kind of agrees with what you already think as well if you do it that way. So the glossing over tool there at your disposal. Don't use it. You shouldn't use it. But big disclaimer alert this morning. We're going to be using heavy use of the glossing over tool as we go through our passage. Now, that's sort of necessary because uh, we're covering chapters 2 to 5 and there's simply too much to cover. But also, I'm going to be deliberately giving you the sort of outline skeleton of what's going on in this part of the story because the outline skeleton is, is really quite simple. Uh, you remember it's all about David's rise to the throne. That's what we've been seeing through the story so far. And that's the outline of what's happening here as well. Saul, the previous king, has just uh, died. He has been removed. And David's way to the throne now seems clear. This is where we know that the story was supposed to go anyway. Because in 1 Samuel, you remember the spoilers that God gave us. He was going to bring Saul down and raise David up and put him in place. And now here we are. Finally, it's all beginning to happen. So what we see at the start of chapter 2 is that he is crowned king over the, uh, the tribe of Judah. And then by the time you get to chapter 5, David is crowned king over all of Israel. Judah was one of the tribes of Israel, and then finally all of Israel. And so here we are. That's the outline, nice and simple. David's rise to the throne, just as God promised would happen, Hannah's song at the start of 1 Samuel, you remember, anticipated that God would establish this king that God had chosen and give him this kingdom, um, even if it meant raising him up from humble, a humble beginning and then bringing down the powerful in his way. Finally, we've got there and all the pieces are in place. But, and let's just remind ourselves as well of the verses at the end of the passage, just so we can see that that we just read. 
So there we are in chapter uh, 5. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. But we need to be aware that we're making heavy use of the glossing over tool here, because actually there's a sort of a murky underbelly to these chapters that we're not going to have time to look at uh, this week. So as you go through chapters 2 to 5, surprisingly, actually, David seems to vanish into the background quite a lot. And you get a couple more rather ambiguous characters coming into the limelight, Joab and Abner, the commanders of two armies. And they tell a rather murkier story. Now, this murky underbelly doesn't contradict everything that we're going to see this week, uh, but it does add complexity because life is never simple. It's not a sort of nice, cheerful, straightforward march to the throne for David. There's going to be violence and sex and power grabbing and assassination galore going on in the murky underbelly. Quite a lot of stuff which actually is probably quite hard to read, in fact, and think about. And it would be nice and easy to gloss over it, um, but it's here in Scripture for a reason for us to grapple with it. However, this week we're just doing the simple sort of outline of things, and then next week we're going to get into the murkiness a little bit more and see the full picture of what's going on here. But anyway, let's return to the skeleton outline for now. As we look at King David and his rise to the throne in these chapters, we're not simply being given historical information here as well. Uh, There are two key teaching points that are developed through the story. The first is that God is keeping his promises to establish his king and his kingdom, as I said already. That's one of the key points throughout all of this. God is working this towards what he's promised. And then the other key point alongside that, which we are seeing, is the sort of outline of what the right kind of king needs to be like if he is going to rule over this kingdom that God is putting in place. So God's promises and then the outline of the right kind of king. And these points are very important building blocks throughout the whole of the Bible's story. Uh, This is the sort of stuff that we're supposed to have in our minds when we read through the New Testament, for example. So that when we see the Lord Jesus in action, we think to ourselves, yes, of course, this, this fits the outline of what we were expecting from the Old Testament. And it makes sense of the promises that God has made. And furthermore, the storyline about getting God, uh, about God getting the right kind of king in place to rule over the world rightly, well, actually that comes right into the present as well and brings us into it as well. There's a sort of a straight line that runs all the way from Hannah's song at the start of 1 Samuel about how God is going to do this all the way into the present and us here today because God is still doing the work of establishing his kingdom in the world, of giving strength to his king, the Lord Jesus, who will eventually judge all nations and bring those into his kingdom. And that won't be fully completed until Jesus returns. So actually this story wraps us up into it as well. This is as relevant for us today, teaching us what it looks like to trust and follow God and his king as it was when it was first written. Now as many of you will already be aware, David is not the perfect outline of the right kind of king. 2 Samuel is very much a book of two hearts where David does stuff that's right and stuff that's wrong. But in the first half, the author's very much wanting to show us the things that he does well. And there are two particular ways in which David does stuff well. The first is what we saw 
last week that he has a very, very high regard for God and the decisions that God makes. So you remember with the death of Saul, even though Saul was David's enemy, David was devastated over Saul's death because Saul was the one that God had appointed and David deeply respected anything that God had said. And the second thing that David does, um, which goes hand in hand with the first, which we see, we're going to see this week, is that David has a very high trust in what God is doing. He has a very high respect for God and he has a very high trust for God. He takes God's words very seriously and he trusts God's very, trusts God very deeply. And if you sort of forget everything else about David that might be important, those are the two key things that give you the outline of why he's the right kind of king. Now, again, <laughs> this point about David trusting the Lord that will come across this week, it's not a new message. Narratives like 1 and 2 Samuel in the Old Testament teach the same point over and over again. We've seen plenty of this in 1 Samuel. But this week at the start of 2 Samuel, there's a fresh challenge for David, a fresh need for him to trust in the plan of God as things get complicated once again. Because we might have been thinking from the skeleton outline that I gave, well, why does David become king over Judah first and then only later further down the line become king over all of Israel? What's going on there? Well, let's dive into chapter 2 and see a little bit more about how all of this comes together. Have a look, flick back to chapter 2 again, which I think was page 305 if you haven't got that open. And let's have a look at chapter 2 again. In the course of time, David inquired of the Lord... Shall I go up to one of the towns of Judah, he asked. The Lord said, go up. David asked, where shall I go? To Hebron, the Lord answered. So David went there with his two wives, Ahunam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. David also took the men who were with him, each with his family, and they settled in Hebron and its towns. Then the men of Judah came to Hebron, and there they anointed David king over the tribe of Judah. Now, the first indication that David is uh, going in the right direction here comes in this sort of throwaway line at the start of chapter 2. We might be very tempted to use the glossing over uh, tool on this bit, but we shouldn't. We should pay attention to it. And it's a simple point, but it's a very important one, which is that David inquires of the Lord before he does anything. Or to put it the other way around, he doesn't just take matters into his own hands and decide what he's going to do. He waits for what God says. We don't know exactly what David's means were of inquiring of God at this point. It's possible that uh, the prophet Nathan was involved, for example, who we're going to see a little bit further down the line in the story. But the point is that David is very careful to follow God's direction after Saul is dead and not just simply presume that he knows What's best? And this is really important because it's precisely what Saul got wrong and the reason that Saul was the wrong kind of king for God's people. We saw this at various key moments in Saul's life, but the absolute worst where he got to the very lowest point was towards the end when he went to go and consult the medium of Endor towards the end of 1 Samuel. What had happened was that Saul had tried to inquire of God for some direction, but God hadn't answered him. And rather than waiting for God, Saul got cold feet and decided he would go and, get a, go and consult a medium, a necromancer, for some answers instead. 
And this was something that God had told his people that he never wanted them to do. Saul was impatient. And we mustn't assume that it was easy for David at this point in 2 Samuel chapter 2. There's no sense of a time scale in the verse that we just read. We don't know how long it took for direction to come to David from God. And furthermore, when the direction did come, God said to go up to Hebron. Now, Hebron's a bit of a placeholder of a kind of a place. We all know that Jerusalem is where David needs to end up eventually. That's where the kings will rule from. But Hebron is a bit of an in-between-in-the-meantime kind of place. It'll take a while before David gets to where he needs to be. And we have to remember that David has been waiting for a very long time for God to fulfill what he's promised at this point. It was years ago when Samuel had first anointed David to be king. A young man full of energy, full of zeal for the Lord at that point. And back then, perhaps it was easier for him to be full of confidence in God. Do you remember the fight against Goliath? David was full of confidence that God would win the battle. Had no problem trusting God. But one can only imagine that that's hard to keep up as time goes on. We know how it works, don't we? It's easy to be zealous when you're young. But the more time goes on, the harder it gets. Saul had also started well, but he got impatient. And it would be very, very believable that finally, now that Saul is dead, David thinks, hang it, I'm going to start writing the script from now on. I'm just going to get on and take matters into my own hands rather than wait for God to do this. But no, he continues to be patient. He listens for God's guidance and he goes where God directs, even if it means Hebron rather than Jerusalem. And if we thought the journey to the throne is almost there at this point, and that David will only have to trust God for a little longer, well, think again, because another twist is coming. Have a look back down at verse 8 of chapter 2. Meanwhile, Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of Saul's army, had taken Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. He made him king over Gilead, Asheri, and Jezreel, and also over Ephraim, Benjamin, and all of Israel, which is basically most of the territory. Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, was 40 years old when he became king over Israel, and he reigned two years. The tribe of Judah, however, remained loyal to David. So here we are, we have David king over Judah, but this guy Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, put in charge of the rest of Israel. Just when we thought that Saul's house was finished, suddenly it gets a fresh wind. Because, of course, there was a bit of ambiguity over the succession of the throne from Saul. The way things had to work in the ancient days, uh, in, in, in um, ancient times, was that the king would pass on kingship to his son unless he didn't have any children or if a military coup happened and his line was overturned and they were all gotten rid of. But given that David does, is unwilling to fight Saul's family and put them to death because of his respect for Saul as the Lord's anointed, well, Abner, the, king, uh, the commander of Saul's army, realizes that there's an opportunity here. All he has to do is simply put Saul's son Ishbosheth in charge and everything can kind of carry on as it was before. Given that most of Israel have already been under Saul's leadership, it was probably quite easy to keep that succession going 
with them. We might be thinking, well, hang on, aren't they all supposed to rally around David? But imagine you're a farmer in the middle of Gilead and all you've got a pitch is a pitchfork. The, probably the thing that you care about most is the least amount of disrupt and the most amount of stability and safety. So if it's Saul's son rather than Saul, well, life continues. And whatever God is doing with the new Lord's anointed stuff, well, he can do that in his own time. And so therefore, once again, David's claim to the throne is contested. There's still going to be a long journey to get there, even after Saul is dead. What will it look like to keep trusting God and being patient through this renewed challenge? And if anything, it just got more difficult. Because previously, David was a bit of a sort of cool hipster freedom fighter on the run in caves. Come and join his band. It's all very exciting kind of thing. But now he's actually been put in charge of Judah and he actually has to lead this people. And whether he likes it or not, sooner or later the inevitable happens. And he's thrown into conflict with Saul, the son of Ishbosheth, who's in charge of the rest. Now we'll touch upon the events of chapter 2 next week. But by the time we get to chapter 3, you can flick forward if you like to chapter 3 verse 1. We're told this. The war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Which is a bit of a glass half full, glass half empty kind of verse, isn't it? On the one hand, David is getting stronger and stronger and Ishbosheth's house is getting weaker and weaker. But on the other hand, he's still having to wait. He's still having to go through this on his way to becoming fully king over everything. Until finally we get to chapter 4 and this episode about the death of Ishbosheth that we had read in our second reading. Let's flick forward to chapter 4 now. Now, Ishbosheth has two captains called Banah and Rechab, and they're kind of in charge of raiding bands that he has. And they get wind that Ishbosheth is losing his grip at this point. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 1, just before the bit we had read, he has heard that Abner has died. We'll learn more about that next week. And his courage fails, we're told. Literally, the, the translation literally is that his hands went slack, which I think is a great way of describing What's going on with his leadership? And so Bana and Rechab, well, they hatch the kind of plan that so often happens throughout history in this sort of situation when you realize that your leader is losing his grip. Their first thought might have been to cast around and look for another relative of Saul's family to try and replace Ishbosheth. And as if to anticipate that they might be thinking this, and we might be thinking this, the author then tells us about the only other member of Saul's family who might be a candidate in verse 4, which is a man named Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son, um, but he had two problems with him. He was too young, and he had also been crippled from birth. And because Bana and Rechab are men of action, Mephibosheth probably seemed weak and useless to them. They'd never listened to Hannah's prayer, of course, at the start of 1 Samuel, that God is often in the business of raising up precisely the weak-looking people and putting them in charge. But they're men of action. They don't listen to that stuff. And so therefore, like the Amalekite messenger last week, they decided that it was time to jump ship from one camp to the other camp. And of course, the best way to do that is simply to assassinate your own king. 
And then come and bring him the evidence. Come and bring the king that you're moving to the evidence, ready to pledge your allegiance to him. It's a tried and tested trick. Because not only are you now getting on the side with power, you're also proving to the new king that you are the kind of guy who can get the job done if necessary. Maybe you'll get a position in his court. And so in chapter 4, Bana and Rechab, they pick their moment. Ishbosheth is working from home for the day, signs that he might have a nap after lunch. Perhaps some of us here know his game. And they take advantage of the fact that they are known to the housekeepers. It looks like they've come to get grain for their raiding parties. They can slip into Ishbosheth's sleeping quarters without causing any alarm at all. And in minutes, the deed is done and they're able to slip out quietly again. Now, interestingly, we're told about the assassination two times. Did you notice that as we were reading? Perhaps it was a little bit confusing. In verse 6, we're told, they went into the inner part of the house as if to get some wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and his brother Banar slipped away. And then in verse 7, they had gone into the house while he was laying on his bed in his bedroom. After they stabbed and killed him, they cut off his head. Taking it with them, they traveled all night by way of the Arabah. Why say it twice? It's a bit odd to do it in two bits. Well, one possibility is that the author is deliberately telling the story so that it sort of mirrors the death of Saul that we saw last week. If you remember with Saul, his death sort of happened in two stages as well, didn't it? The first thing that happened was he fell upon his own sword. He was stabbed in the stomach. And then the Philistines came along later and cut off his head and rejoiced in their towns. And now with the murder of Ishbosheth, the story is spun so that we can see clear parallels. Firstly, we're told that they come and stab him in the stomach and escape. And then almost as if they've come back a second time, although really it's part of the same event, they cut off his head. But the difference this time is that it is those within the camp of Saul who are performing both of the roles, the actual killing and then the cutting off the head, which the Philistines did with Saul. And it's all supposed to feel like deja vu, but worse. And also deja vu with David's response that comes afterwards. They come to David expecting the celebrations to begin. Does this ring any bells from last week? Verse 8, they say, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who tried to kill you. This day the Lord has avenged my Lord the king against Saul and his offspring. Finally, the wait is over. Finally, every obstacle in David's way is removed. There are no sons left who are suitable to take the place of Ishbosheth. Saul's line is finally ended. And we're all ready for David to rejoice and to turn to God perhaps and tell him it's about time something like this happened. But what is David's response? Verse 9. David answered Rechab and his brother Banal, the sons of Rimon the Beorite, as surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble... When someone told me Saul is dead and thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and put him to death in Ziklag. That was the reward I gave him for his news. How much more when wicked men have killed an innocent man in his own house and on his own bed, should I now not demand, should I not now demand his blood from your hand and rid the earth of you? 
Now, the difference between this week and last week with the Amalekite is that Saul was already dying in that instance. And David's anger with the Amalekite was because he thought that the death of Saul was good news and had helped it to um, happen more quickly. But Saul would have died anyway if he hadn't been there. Whereas this week, that's not the case with Ishbosheth. He was perfectly alive beforehand. And so in a sense, if you think about it, Bana and Rechab have done David a massive favor. If we're thinking about this purely objectively, they've massively sped up the process of him getting to the throne. And if you were thinking about it in a normal human way, David should be delighted with what they've done. But what he says in verse 9 is very telling. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble. David didn't need these hitmen to come and help him out. He'd had God on his side all along. God was perfectly capable of getting him out of every scrape along the way. And so all David cares about is the, the deed that they have done. If he put to death the man who thought the death of Saul was good news, how much more will he demand the blood of those who have needlessly killed the son of Saul? And this is all the worse given that we're told in verse 2 that the assassins were from the tribe of Benjamin, which was Saul's line. This hasn't just come from the Israelites more generally. This murder has come from within Saul's wider family more specifically. For David, once again, it's simply a terrible tragedy and an awful deed rather than a great rescue and a help on his way to the throne. Because he had God sorting him out all along. Now we should be used to this kind of trick that the author of this book is playing on us, because he keeps doing it again and again. And yet, I think once again it takes us by surprise how David reacts to the death of Ishbosheth. This time because he's still so totally confident that the Lord will get him to the throne in the Lord's timing. David was probably a teenager when he was first anointed by Samuel. Now he's 30. It's been about 15 years. He still isn't king over all of Israel. And now surely the final obstacle is out of his way. But he's still quite happy to wait for God's timing. I was trying to think of an analogy to help us to get into David's shoes a little bit, and this isn't perfect, but imagine that you had been engaged to be married, and then you had to wait 15 years, and during that time you were deported out of the country for all of that. That's probably a little bit like what it's like being in David's shoes. You'd be fed up with God, wouldn't you? You might even take any opportunity to get this sorted. But the man after God's heart is the one who is totally confident that God will establish his plans in his own timing. And there's something refreshingly straightforward about that, isn't there? It's been 15 years, David. That's okay. God will do it when he's ready. And as we look forward to the New Testament and the Lord Jesus, as we did last week, we can see again how David is a sketch of the perfect king. Because this is exactly the sort of quality that Jesus shows when he's going to the cross. An absolute, resolute confidence in God's plan. So confident that God will establish his kingdom, that he's even willing to go to his death, knowing that God will raise him on the other side. 
This is all part of the Lord's timing. There's a great passage towards the end of Matthew's gospel where Peter tries to help Jesus out when he's about to be arrested. And Jesus simply says, you do know I could call upon 12 legions of angels to help me out if I wanted to, don't you? But then how would the scriptures be fulfilled? God's king is the one who completely trusts God's promises and his timing to work them out through everything. And I think it's fascinating how the Bible wants to teach this lesson over and over again to us because we need help with it today as well. There are any number of reasons why we're tempted to give up on God and assume that he's sort of completely lost his marbles when it comes to running the world. No, he will establish his kingdom in all of the earth as he has promised. We follow the right king, Jesus, because we follow the king who trusts God's timing and teaches us to do the same. Well, why don't we pray to finish? We thank you, Heavenly Father, for King David in this passage and the ways in which he gives us this outline of what the king needs to be like to lead your people, the one who trusts you completely and waits for you to do things your way in your time. And we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you that we live this side of history, that we can see how he fills out that that profile of the one who trusts you entirely. And we pray for your help for ourselves today as, as we try to keep following him, as we wait for your timing to establish your kingdom throughout the earth and give strength to the Lord Jesus as he does that. We know that that's difficult to do, and we pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.